That was a heavy-handed sentence Judge Harry S. McDevitt laid upon Orlando Spartaco. Too heavy for the offense. Spartaco broke police lines while Dino Grandi, foreign minister of Italy, was visiting this city and shouted, Down with Mussolini! Down with fascism! Down with the murderers of Italian youth! That is the total extent of his offense. In the courtroom, it became inciting a riot, and the enthusiastic Spartaco may spend two years in jail. Judge McDevitt has often been praised by this newspaper as a jurist of the highest type. His understanding of complex problems, as shown in the PRT equity suit, is matched by his deep courage. Yet he goes too far by providing this heavy sentence as a notice to others in this city who have communistic tendencies. Communism is a ridiculous attempt by half-baked theorists to solve the world's problems by the snap of a finger. And the way to foster communism is by precisely this type of harsh and rigorous repression. The question of communism had no place to trial. The question of the merits of fascism had no place. Spartaco's conduct and its immediate implications were the only problems. Thirty days in jail would have been a heavy sentence. The Spartaco outbreak was in vile taste, but there was no danger of riot, and it was not a two-year offense. An appeal should be allowed. Philadelphia Record, November 28, 1931. Within about three weeks, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had, er had ordered Spartaco release on $1,000 bail, and when his lawyer failed to procure enough money, Judge McDevitt himself paid. The prisoner, however, was none too pleased with the prospect, and was removed from jail under protest. I will not take bail from Judge McDevitt, he said. He is my enemy. He twice refused to give me bail. Then when the case went to the higher court, they said bail could be given. I stand with my attorney and my organization, the International Labor Defense, and I will not go out on his bail. But eventually, after the judge explained the ruling, he did, still under protest. This is episode 14, the murder of Norman Bechtel, and the Spartaco case may have, indirectly, led to its discovery. once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Norman R. Bechtel was a 31-year-old insurance salesman, originally from Bowie in Berks County, Pennsylvania. He was also engaged in work for the Mennonite Church. On the night of January 19, 1932, he was visiting Reverend D.J. Unruh at the Grace Mennonite Church on York Avenue in Lansdale, in the company of Robert Ross and Eleanor Temple. After Ross and Temple were dropped off at their homes in North Philadelphia, in the Olney and Germantown sections, respectively, 
Bechtel was never to be seen alive again. His badly bleeding body was found at about 12.10 p.m., lying on the grounds of Lone Oak, the at the time vacant estate of Mrs. Thomas P.C. Stokes at Wissahickon and Westview Avenues in Chestnut Hill. He was discovered by Rudolph Lehman, a police officer who was working an additional security detail assigned to Judge Harry S. McDevitt, whose home was located near the Stokes estate, after threats made to his life. These threats may have surfaced in connection with the Spartaco case, or with a bomb which detonated near McDevitt's home during Grandy's visit. In any case, Bechtel's car was nowhere to be found. In addition, his wallet and watch were missing, leading to an initial suspicion of robbery. Bechtel never regained consciousness and later died in the hospital. Some also initially felt that the murder was a case of mistaken identity. The proximity of the body to the judge's estate was an indication that he, perhaps, was mistaken for Judge McDevitt. At first, this seems ludicrous as there seems to be little physical resemblance between Bechtel and McDevitt. But given the glasses case mentioned below, if one puts glasses on Bechtel, the two could vaguely be mistaken for each other, I suppose. The next day, Bechtel's body was examined more closely at the morgue by the coroner and Captain Harry Heenley of the Homicide Division. And a bizarre circumstance was found. His upper face was webbed by a bizarre network of incisions. As described in the Franklin News Herald for January 21st, two small crescents were cut into the flesh on either side of the forehead. A horizontal slit about an inch long was under each crescent. Then, in the center of the forehead, extending in a vertical line from the hairline to the bridge of the nose, was another cut. Extending from this one, diagonally up and across the forehead, were two more cuts. Each incision was just deep enough to cause blood flow. William Condon, superintendent of the morgue, stated of the mysterious pattern, It looks as though the slayer carved the figure out as deliberately as if he were working on ivory. He had apparently been stabbed with some sort of narrow blade, akin to a stiletto. The initial stab to the heart was so ferocious it penetrated the heavy coat the victim wore, a suit coat, and a glasses case in the inside pocket. Then the seven other stab wounds were made in a circle around the initial one. It was later found that these stab wounds were very shallow. He had also been stabbed in the head and kidney. This was all very arcane, and dare I say ritualistic, and given Bechtel's being native to Berks County, a hotbed of belief in Pennsylvania Dutch hex magic, that angle was pursued and the initial suspicion of robbery discarded. His car was found January 21st, abandoned in front of a vacant house in West Philadelphia near the corner of 32nd and Pearl Streets, near the location of current-day Drexel Park. The interior of the car was saturated with blood, unsurprising given the ferocity of the attack. Despite this fact, no fingerprints were found. Whether this is an indication that the killer wore gloves or an indication that simply no clear prints were found is unknown. A young man named John Coles, a garage attendant, was questioned after it was determined that he had looked after Bechtel's car on occasion, but that lead didn't pan out and Coles was released. Bechtel's Philadelphia apartment was also searched by Captain Hanley, who found only books, church materials, and some documents from his employer none of which turned up anything of interest. 
Hopes were momentarily raised when a journal was found, but although examination of this turned up any number of names which could have been of interest, investigation revealed that not really any of those had any knowledge of the crime. His will was also found, and it was discovered he had a sizable life insurance policy, which was $22,000, $50,000, or $60,000, depending on the account that you read. This would be the equivalent of $370,000 to a million dollars in today's money. His will, said Heanley, will speak for itself, but we'd like to know why a bachelor of Bechtel's age would want to carry so much insurance. In the second place, we would like to know who are the beneficiaries. The beneficiaries, it was later determined, were two of his siblings, his sister Elsie and his brother Wilbur. Author A. Monroe R. Rand, who had researched Pennsylvania folk magic, said that any perceived connection between this murder and powwow was completely ludicrous and unfounded. After examination of the apartment, Captain Heanley concurred, saying that I found nothing to give us a clue as to these hex marks. Everything we found indicated he was an upright and honest young church worker. There was nothing to show that he belonged to any secret order. That same day, police questioned Eleanor Temple, who, along with Robert Ross, was one of the last to have seen Bechtel alive. She stated that Bechtel had dropped her off at her home in North Philadelphia at about 11.45. Eleanor stated, I did not know Mr. Bechtel socially. We had met several times in church work, but we did not belong to the same churches and were not at all well acquainted. He called me up two days before the meeting in Lansdale and made arrangements for it. We did not plan to go to the gathering together, however, and I went by train. I purchased a round-trip ticket. When the meeting was over, there was an hour to wait for a train. Mr. Bechtel said he would drive me home along with Mr. Ross. Mr. Ross and I were much better friends than Mr. Bechtel and I. On the way home, they joked and talked continually. I did not enter into the conversation because I did not know him well enough. He was very jolly, but he may have been hiding some secret worry. I do not know because I was not a close friend of his. He left me at my home and said goodnight, and that is all I know about it. About 4 a.m., we were called up and told that he was in the hospital. We found out later he had died. As early as January 22nd, a person of interest was sought. The ubiquitous foreigner almost always sought in such cases. Several statements had been obtained, stating that a wild-eyed man dark of complexion boarded a train at about 1 a.m. the morning of the 20th at 32nd and Market Streets, which was only blocks from where Bechtel's car was found abandoned. It was also stated to police that the vacant house the car was found in front of was frequented by a strange-looking hobo who had made his residence therein. When searched, in the house was discovered food, clothes, and letters, signs that the home had, in fact, been occupied. Several foreign-language newspapers were discovered, as well as a postcard from Germany. A blood-stained cloth was found next to a newspaper containing one of the letters written by New York serial killer 3X, who shot two people in Queens in 1930. It was speculated that there may have been some connection between these crimes and the Bechtel murder. This possibility was bolstered somewhat by the fact that relatives of Joseph Mazinski, the first victim, were natives of Philadelphia. The letter in question was a recent one, though, written to Captain William E. Houghton of the Secret Service. The killer promised information on recent bombings that had taken place in New York. When asked, 
Bechtel's family also agreed with a theory of not necessarily 3X, but some random killing by a stranger. Public Safety Director Kern Dodge appointed his assistant, Theodore F. Wood, to investigate the murder. Public Safety Director, true crime aficionados may recall, is also the position Elliot Ness held in Cleveland during the investigation into the infamous torso killer a few years later. I want this case solved, said Dodge. I have asked Mr. Wood, a detective with years of experience, to make his own investigations of this baffling case. I do this to put the case in the most experienced hands. But like Cleveland, this set up a political situation, and now there were two competing investigations into the crime taking place simultaneously. It was soon discovered that, although his religious nature might seem to preclude it, Bechtel was quite the gambler, often carrying around several hundred dollars, according to his uncle. He also often took part in high-stakes poker games. Another lead was briefly pursued, that being that Bechtel was murdered by a woman he met at midnight. The lanes near the Stokes estate were well known as a lover's lane area, according to Officer Rudolph Lehman, who had discovered Bechtel's body. But in hindsight, this seems like a ludicrous idea. Not necessarily the idea of a woman having killed him, but the quote-unquote evidence used to support it. The shallow stab wounds, it was said, were indicative of quote-unquote feminine weakness. The glasses case in Bechtel's pocket required little effort to penetrate. The narrow-bladed weapon was quote-unquote of the type used by a woman. Bloodstains in the car revealed that Bechtel's body was dragged from the car with a bit of difficulty all of which can be seen as an indication of possibly a weaker man, not necessarily a woman. Not necessarily a bad theory, as I said, but ridiculous supporting evidence for said theory. Bechtel's brother, Wilbur, one of the beneficiaries of the insurance policy, offered a reward of about $1,000, which is about $17,000 today, for any information about his brother's murder. The reward remained unclaimed. A formal coroner's inquest was held in mid-February, and after all the evidence was presented, a verdict was reached within 20 minutes. And as should come as no surprise, the verdict was murder at the hands of persons unknown. For nearly a year, the investigation of the Norman Bechtel case stalled, although it was still ongoing. On December 8, 1932, Another slang connected with the murder took place. Detective Michael G. Krosky, a resident of the same area where Bechtel's car was found, was engaged in investigation of the Bechtel murder, and he had been formally assigned to the case for only a few days. His body was discovered in the garage of his home. He was slain by narrow punctures or stabs, which some at first saw as quite similar to those which had killed the man whose murder he was investigating. These were later proven to have been from something similar to, like, an ice pick. Krosky had received a new clue in the neighborhood, a statement from a milkman that he had seen a black man driving Bechtel's car to where it was found, get out and hide behind a hedge briefly, and then run off. He had apparently asked to be assigned to the case, spurred on by the reward offered by Wilbur Bechtel and the milkman's statement. However, unlike Bechtel's, there were witnesses to this murder. Three young boys, Lester Smith, Joseph Graham, and Ted Jones, 
saw Krosky and a black man arguing just outside the garage. I've got you now. You're not gonna get away, the man said before he threw Krosky to the floor and stabbed him several times in the throat with an ice pick. Police initially wondered whether the, the killer of Detective Krosky was the same man who slew Norman Bechtel. Assistant Director of Public Safety Theodore Wood, who was to receive a promotion to safety director the next year, after Kern Dodge was fired by Mayor J. Hampton Moore, stated, There is absolutely nothing at this time to connect the murders of Bechtel and Krosky. But it is proven a reminder that the Bechtel case is still unsolved, and no doubt everyone will start digging again. The man that the three boys saw was soon determined to be an ex-con named George Green, also known by the nickname Sugarfoot. A frantic search for Green took place over the next few days. He was finally found on December 10th, ironically, by police raiding a home in West Philadelphia seeking illegal alcohol. Prohibition was still in effect at the time, remember. Green was employed as a driver of an ice wagon, and he said that as Detective Krosky turned to park his car in his garage, the car and the wagon bumped into each other. The man in the car jumped out, ran after me, and pulled me from the ice wagon, Green stated. A fight followed in which I stabbed him. The weapon, Green said, was not an ice pick, but a screwdriver. He claimed not to have known Krosky was a policeman, but, as Green was also a man with a reputation as a cop-hater, take that for what you will. After the false alarm provided by the Krosky murder, the Bechtel case had hit another roadblock and stalled again for four long years. In July of 1936, though, there was a flurry of renewed activity. Police were questioning two individuals, a convict at Greaterford Penitentiary named William F. Bloomer, and another man, it was unclear whether he was a convict or not, known only as Weber. Though police declined to comment on just what had triggered this new activity, it was apparently at least perceived as a promising lead, since Superintendent James H. Malone returned early from a vacation when news of the questionings broke. Captain Matthew H. Clark reported that we expect to have this case cleared within two or three days. There is still much work to be done. It was soon reported that Bloomer had been returned to Greaterford and Weber still remained in police custody. Bloomer had been serving two and a half to five years in jail for robbery. A notorious Pennsylvania inmate known as Lou Edwards, serving 12 years at the equally notorious Holmesburg prison, was also seen as possibly a person of interest. Bloomer was a former associate of Edwards. On July 30th, the police began questioning Lou Edwards. Lieutenant Joseph Kearns and Judge McDevitt, who had taken an especial interest in the Bechtel killing since it occurred near his home, questioned him. Following the Edwards questioning, Kearns said that they had not obtained a confession. Lieutenant Kearns and Judge McDevitt met with several other police officials, including Superintendent Malone, Captain Clark, Sergeant Thomas McGorlin, who was the one who had initially arrested Edwards, and Detective Martin Kern. It was rumored that Edwards had contacted Detective William Connolly and hinted that he had some knowledge of the case. Louis A. Lou Edwards was arrested the first time in 1923 for attempting to steal a car at Front and Penn Streets in Reading. While awaiting sentencing, he attempted an escape from the prison, which at the time was in City Park. 
A pistol was smuggled in, and with it Edward shot a guard named Shelkoff, stealing his keys to let himself out the front door. In the meantime, Shelkoff obtained another pistol and shot Edwards in the hand, thwarting the escape attempt. As a result of this attempt, Edwards was transferred to Eastern State Penitentiary. Two weeks after he was transferred, on July 14, 1923, Edwards and five others escaped. Successfully this time. The other five were James Goofy Williams from Susquehanna County, George Brown from Wilkes-Barre, and Thomas Gillen, James Malone, and James Brown, all of Philadelphia. They somehow obtained a truck. They next encountered motorist Thomas J. McAllister. The account of the escape, in McAllister's own words, follows. As I drove out Poplar Street Saturday morning, a truck loaded with six men, going very fast, whizzed alongside and came to a sudden stop in front of my car. I was forced to throw on the brakes to avoid crashing into the rear of the truck. Before I had taken my hand off the emergency brake, one of the men in the truck jumped out and ran back to my car. All the men wore blue trousers and jumpers, like railroad engineers. The fellow who came running back to my car, who I later found was Thomas J. Gillen, sentenced from 10 to 15 years for complicity in the holdup of a bank runner, which is essentially what will be today considered armored car robbery, said to me, throw up your hands, Bo. He was pointing a nickeled revolver at me, and in the same breath ordered me out of the car. I saw it was not gonna be a sun Sunday picnic, because as the others came running from the truck, they all pulled revolvers. So I got out, and pretty lively too. Then another one of the men, who I later learned was James L. Malone, serving 18 years for highway robbery, grabbed me by the collar, and threw me back into the lower part of the car. In a few seconds, I felt myself being picked up and saw that all the convicts were in the car, the motor of which was still going. Louis A. Edwards, who was brought to the penitentiary from Reading, took the wheel. Gillen, who at first seemed to be the boss and brains of the entire affair, sat beside Edwards, who I have been told was the most notorious automobile thief in the country. I was forced into the back seat, with Malone and Goofy Williams. James Brown sat on Malone's lap, and George Brown, who I later learned constructed the ladder which made the escape possible, sat on Williams' lap. Edwards was the best automobile driver I have ever come into contact with. He drove like fury. No car in the world would ever have caught us. Malone had a revolver, which he insisted on shoving into my ribs. He said to me, Now, come along and be a good sport. Don't holler, because it won't do you any good. One crack out of you, and it's your last. McAllister then said that Edward sped south. He continued, We detoured around Chester, and a little later Edward said to the others, Boys, gotta get some clothes. The, the wires will be hot now. We were passing a farmhouse, and Edwards drove the car right up to the house. It was Anthony Smith's place, about five miles from Wilmington. Malone went to Smith, who was working in the field, and told him he was wanted at the house. George Brown and Williams, with revolvers in their hands, took me by the sleeves and we walked up into the kitchen. When Malone came in with Smith, the convicts all stuck the farmer up. Edwards and one of the others went upstairs and started to ransack the place. They came down with their arms full of clothing and other stuff. 
Edwards came down with Smith's watch and chain in his hand, but Malone took it away from him and gave it back to the farmer. It looked later in the machine like they were about to fight over this, but the matter blew over. When we got back in the car, two of the convicts were dressed in civilian clothes. They had left their prison uniforms on the farm. The others changed their uniforms on the car. Before they left, they took up a collection among them and raised about $30, which one of them ran back and left with Smith. Among the loot they obtained were a shotgun and a revolver, which Edward said would come in handy for the police. There were also shotgun shells on the bottom of the car. When I got back with my guard, I heard them say that they had tied up Smith and his family. The car went through Wilmington, Delaware, and didn't slow down until after they had passed Newark. Edwards drove into the woods until nighttime. In the morning, said McAllister, we drove onto the road again. Pretty soon we passed the store. They went in and bought crackers, soda water, and ham, but I didn't get any of it. At Newark, they had purchased two pairs of trousers and two straw hats. Then we drove through Elkton, and they stopped to buy more food. After we passed Elkton, they gave me something to eat. Then Edwards drove off the main road again and went into the woods. Pretty soon, Gillen and Malone tied my hands and feet with part of the coat they had taken from Smith's house. One man tore off the bottom of his shirt and made a gag which they put in my mouth. They left me in the car and told me not to move until daylight. Then they went away. I started to wiggle about five minutes after they left, but Edwards came back with his revolver in his hand, and with an oath and a kick, he said, If you try to get away before daylight, we'll plug you good. Don't move, you rat. They had taken their guns from the car. When they finally disappeared, I started wiggling myself loose. I was weak and weary, and it took a long time. After I was free, I lay still to see what would happen. They didn't come back, so I cautiously started the car and drove back to the road with my lights dimmed. The motor was throttled down so as not to make so much noise. I then drove to Elkton and went to the police station gave my name and reported my experiences. Then I telephoned my wife and hurried back home. Contrary to some reports, Lou Edwards was not one of the infamous Four Horsemen, which were a group of inmates who set themselves up as a sort of governing body over the other inmates in Eastern State Penitentiary, and later maintained a virtual stranglehold on all criminal activities there. Several websites say the July 1923 escape was made by a Leo Callahan and five accomplices, and that Callahan was the mastermind of the entire plot. Leo Callahan was another name used by James Malone. He escaped, and he was never found, unlike his five compatriots. Newspapers on July 17th revealed where the convicts went after leaving McAllister. They had apparently made it south on the eastern shore of Maryland to the area of Pocomoke City. Here they stole a motorboat. Well, four of them did. Lou Edwards was one of these. Eventually, after a nationwide manhunt, five of the convicts were recaptured or killed. Although Lou Edwards escaped justice for several years, he made his way to San Francisco, living there for a time before he was recaptured after four years in 1927 in Honolulu, Hawaii. He was returned to Eastern State 
and began to construct and sell model ships. He married a prison reformer and became a model prisoner. By 1929, he was pardoned as completely reformed. He maintained that he would always lend a helping hand to an ex-con in search of a job or to stay on the right path. Ironically, though perhaps not unexpectedly, his helping hand wasn't as benign as he tried to make it sound. Edwards was arrested again in 1933, this time accused of having worked in a sort of advisory role to a group of bandits who robbed the Accommodation Coal Company at 633 Lindley Avenue in Philadelphia of approximately $500. The city detectives had been monitoring Edwards, who it was rumored had gone bad again for nearly two months, and he was eventually accosted by detectives while walking on 33rd Street in the company of three men identified as some of the Coke Company robbers. The three men were identified as Joseph Wilson, Edward Seeley, and William Mealy, all residents of the same apartment building at 39th Street and Lancaster Avenue. Coincidentally, in the same West Philadelphia neighborhood where Bechtel's car was found and where Detective Krosky was murdered. While detectives searched Edwards' home at 3216 Bering Street on the other side of the block from where Bechtel's car was found, three other men showed up and were taken in for questioning. These were Frank Gay, Tony Petruski, and William Bloomer, the same Bloomer questioned about the murder prior to Edwards. But back to the Bechtel murder. It's unknown what results this questioning of Edwards, Bloomer, and the mysterious Weber turned up. Reports had it that after questioning Edwards, Lieutenant Kearns had received a signed statement of something. Superintendent James H. Malone commented during the 1936 flurry of activity that the case broke too soon, and that the publicity attendant to the case had given any number of suspects opportunity to flee. In 1937, another breakthrough came when Detective Warren Murphy obtained a confession from a man named William Jordan. Jordan maintained that while he was not the slayer, he was a witness to the murder and could swear that a deceased individual by the name of Oliver Armstrong was the killer. Armstrong died in 1932. Also held as witnesses were Fletcher Williams, Lucy Young Scott, and John Coles. Yes, that's the same John Coles who was questioned and released very early in the investigation. The story to which Jordan testified was the following. On January 19th, the five individuals named here were drinking in a local speakeasy. They had run out of drinking money, and Coles first tried to get some money at the garage where he worked. This failed, and then Coles said he had not an appointment to meet someone the implication being that this someone might give them money. This was at about 11 o'clock. Bechtel arrived at the Stokes estate, where a car with the five drinkers was parked. Armstrong and Coles got out of the car, Armstrong saying, Let me do the talking. I've got a grudge against this guy anyway. Supposedly, Bechtel had somehow cost Armstrong a job in the past. Bechtel and Armstrong conversed for about five minutes, at which point Armstrong clubbed him over the head, and stabbed him repeatedly with a pocket knife. Then he drove the car in onto the grounds of the estate, pulled Bechtel's body from the car, and drove off. Coles and the others followed Armstrong, eventually picking him up near where the car was abandoned in West Philadelphia. Then the five continued drinking with their newfound blood money. 
Warren Murphy was a detective when the case broke, and he said he had always suspected Coles of some involvement. He was demoted to patrolman for some reason which was not really made clear, although the implication was that he was demoted after he began to seriously look into the possibility that Coles had some involvement. And when S. Davis Wilson became mayor, he was reinstated as part of a special commission to investigate the Bechtel case. Also being investigated was a $2,800 payment from Wilbur Bechtel, the deceased brother, to Detective Frank Shaplinsky, who at some point following the investigation was himself demoted. By 1937, he was a patrolman. He refused comment on the payment, although Norman's aunt, Elmira Bechtel, said, but it wasn't to have him keep anything in the case undercover. It was because Shaplinsky was in trouble over a mortgage on his home. The mayor himself questioned Wilbur Bechtel, and he denied that he was trying to have the investigation drop because it would damage his brother's character. He was also questioned about Norman's diary, which shortly after being discovered had apparently disappeared out of police custody. Again, he denied knowledge. He said he found it hard to believe Jordan's confession as well. Jordan was sentenced on August 27th to 5 to 10 years in Eastern State Penitentiary, charged with voluntary manslaughter. This seems rather harsh of a charge, because, I mean, although he accompanied the killer, he most likely wasn't aware Armstrong intended to kill him. Although Coles, Williams, and Scott denied having witnessed the murder, all were indicted. I could find no account of what came of their trials, however. No accounting was ever made of the meaning behind the odd symbols that were at least perceived to have been engraved on Bechtel. Apparently, like the so-called symbols on the face of Jack the Ripper victim, Catherine Eddowes, these were merely random wounds and scratches that were given meaning by the pattern-seeking minds of the detectives. And that's the end of this episode. A list of the sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post to our Facebook page Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77, lowercase f, lowercase d, all one word, at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off.